Chapter Ten of A Son of the Middle Border by Hamlin Garland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Homestead on the Knoll. Spring came to us that year with such sudden beauty, such sweet significance after our long and depressing winter, that it seemed a release from prison. And when at the close of a warm day in March we heard, pulsing down through the golden haze of sunset, the mellow boom, boom, boom of the prairie cock, our hearts quickened, for this, we were told, was the certain sign of spring. Day by day the call of this gay herald of spring was taken up by others, until at last the whole horizon was ringing with a surprise symphony of exultant song. Boom, 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 called the roosters. Cutta, cutta, wa-whoop, squawk, squawk answered the hens as they fluttered and danced on the ridges, and mingled with their jocund hymn, we heard at last the slender wistful piping of the prairie lark. With the coming of spring my duties as a teamster returned. My father put me in charge of a harrow, and with old doll and queen, quiet and faithful span, I drove upon the field which I had plowed the previous October there to plod to and fro behind my drag, while in the sky above my head and around me on the mellowing soil the life of the season thickened. Aided by my team, I was able to study at close range the prairie roosters as they assembled for their parade. They had regular stamping grounds on certain ridges, where the soil was beaten smooth by the pressure of their restless feet. I often passed within a few yards of them, I can see them now, the cocks leaping and strutting, with trailing wings and down-thrust heads, displaying their bulbous orange-colored neck ornaments, while the hens flutter and squawk in silly delight. All the charm and mystery of that prairie world comes back to me, and I ache with an illogical desire to recover it and hold it, and preserve it in some form for my children. It seems an injustice that they should miss it and yet it is probable that they are getting an equal joy of life an equal exaltation from the opening flowers of the single lilac bush in our city back yard or from an occasional visit to the lake in central park dragging is even more wearisome than ploughing in some respects for you have no handles to assist you and your heels sinking deep into the soft loam bring such unwonted strain upon the tendons of your legs that you can scarcely limp home to supper, and it seems that you cannot possibly go on another day, but you do, at least I did. There was something relentless as the weather in the way my soldier father ruled his sons, and yet he was neither hard-hearted nor unsympathetic. The fact is easily explained. His own boyhood had been task-filled, and he saw nothing unnatural in the regular employment of his children. Having had little playtime himself, he considered that we were having a very comfortable boyhood. Furthermore, the country was new and labor scarce. Every hand and foot must count under such conditions. There are certain ameliorations to child labor on a farm. Air and sunshine and food are plentiful. I never lacked for meat or clothing, and mingled with my records of toil are exquisite memories of the joy I took in following the changes in the landscape, in the notes of birds, and in the play of small animals on the sunny soil. There were no pigeons on the prairie 
but enormous flocks of ducks came sweeping northward, alighting at sunset to feed in the fields of stubble. They came in countless myriads, and often when they settled to earth, they covered acres of meadow like some prodigious cataract from the sky. When alarmed, they rose with a sound like the rumbling of thunder. At times the lines of their cloud-like flocks were so unending that those in the front rank were lost in the northern sky, while those in the rear were but dim bands beneath the southern sun. I tried many times to shoot some of them, but never succeeded. So wary were they. Brant and geese in formal flocks followed, and to watch these noble birds, pushing their arrowy lines straight into the north, always gave me special joy. On fine days they flew high, so high they were but faint lines against the shining clouds. I learned to imitate their cries, and often caused the leaders to turn, to waver in their course as I uttered my resounding call. The sandhill crane came last of all, loitering north in lonely, easeful flight. Often of a warm day I heard his sovereign cry falling from the azure dome, so high so far his form could not be seen, so close to the sun that my eyes could not detect his solitary, majestic, circling sweep. He came after the geese. He was the herald of summer. His brazen, reverberating call will forever remain associated in my mind with mellow, pulsating earth, springing grass, and cloudless, glorious, maytime skies. As my team moved to and fro over the field, ground sparrows rose in countless thousands, flinging themselves against the sky like grains of wheat from out a sower's hand, and their chatter fell upon me like the voices of fairy sprites, invisible and multitudinous. Long swift narrow flocks of a bird we called the prairie pigeon swooped over the swells on sounding wing, winding so close to the ground they seemed at times like slender airborne serpents, and always the brown lark whistled as if to cheer my lonely task. Back and forth across the wide field I drove, while the sun crawled slowly up the sky. It was tedious work, and I was always hungry by nine, and famished at ten. Thereafter the sun appeared to stand still. My chest caved in, and my knees trembled with weakness. But when at last the white flag fluttering from a chamber window summoned to the midday meal, I started with strength miraculously renewed and called, Dinner! to the hired hand. Unhitching my team, with eager haste I climbed upon old Queen and rode at ease toward the barn. Oh, it was good to enter the kitchen, odorous with fresh biscuits and hot coffee. We all ate like dragons devouring potatoes and salt pork without end, till mother mildly remarked, Boys, boys, don't founder yourselves. From such a meal I withdrew torpid as a gorged snake, but luckily I had half an hour in which to get my courage back, and besides, there was always the stirring power of father's clarion call. His energy appeared superhuman to me. I was in awe of him. He kept track of everything, seemed hardly to sleep, and never complained of weariness. Long before the nooning was up, or, so it seemed to me, he began to shout, 
Time's up, boys. Grab a root. And so, lame, stiff, and sore, with the sinews of my legs shortened, so that my knees were bent like an old man's, I hobbled away to the barn and took charge of my team. Once in the field I felt better. A subtle change, a mellower charm came over the afternoon earth. The ground was warmer, the sky more genial, the wind more amiable, and before I had finished my second round, my joints were moderately pliable and my sinews relaxed. Nevertheless, the temptation to sit on the corner of the harrow and dream the moments away was very great, and sometimes, as I laid my tired body down on the tawny sunlit grass at the edge of the field, and gazed up at the beautiful clouds sailing by, I wished for leisure to explore their purple valleys. The wind whispered in the tall weeds and sighed in the hazel bushes. The dried blades, touching one another in the passing winds, spoke to me, and the gophers, glad of escape from their dark underground prisons, chirped a cheery greeting. Such respites were strangely sweet. So, day by day, as I walked my monotonous round upon the ever-mellowing soil, the prairie spring unrolled its beauties before me. I saw the last goose pass on to the north, and watched the green grass creeping up the sunny slopes. I answered the splendid challenge of the loitering crane, and studied the ground sparrow building her grassy nest. The prairie hens began to seek seclusion in the swales, and the pocket gopher, busily mining the sod, threw up his purple-brown mounds of cool fresh earth. Larks, bluebirds, and kingbirds followed by robins, and at last the full tide of May covered the world with luscious green. Harriet and Frank returned to school, but I was too valuable to be spared. The unbroken land of our new farm demanded the plow, and no sooner was the planting on our rented place finished than my father began the work of fencing and breaking the sod of the homestead which lay a mile to the south, glowing like a garden under the summer sun. One day, late in May, my Uncle David, who had taken a farm not far away, drove over with four horses hitched to a big breaking plow and together with my father set to work overturning the primeval sward whereon we were to be lords of the soil. I confess that as I saw the tender plants and shining flowers bow beneath the remorseless beam, civilization seemed a sad business, and yet there was something epic, something large gestured and splendid in the breaking season. Smooth, glossy, almost unwrinkled, the thick ribbon of jet-black sod rose upon the share and rolled away from the moldboard's glistening curve to tuck itself upside down into the furrow behind the horse's heels, and the picture which my uncle made gave me pleasure in spite of the sad changes he was making. The land was not all clear prairie, and every ounce of David's great strength was required to guide that eighteen-inch plow as it went ripping and snarling through the matted roots of the hazel thickets, and sometimes my father came and sat on the beam in order to hold the coulter to its work, while the giant driver braced himself to the shock, and the four horses strained desperately at their traces. These contests had the quality of a wrestling match, but the men always won. My own job was to rake and burn the brush, which my father mowed with a heavy scythe, Later we dug post-holes and built fences, 
but each day was spent on the new land. Around us, on the swells, gray gophers whistled, and the nesting plover quaveringly called. Blackbirds clucked in the furrow, and squat badgers watched with jealous eye the plow's inexorable progress toward their dens. The weather was perfect June. Fleecy clouds sailed like snowy galleons from west to east. The wind was strong but kind, and we worked in a glow of satisfied ownership. Many rattlesnakes, Massasagas, Mr. Button called them, inhabited the moist spots, and father and I killed several as we cleared the ground. Prairie wolves lurked in the groves and swales, but as foot by foot and rod by rod, the steady steel rolled the grass and hazel brush under. All of these wild things died or hurried away, never to return. Some part of this tragedy I was able even then to understand and regret. At last the wide quarter section lay upturned, black to the sun, and the garden that had bloomed and fruited for millions of years, waiting for man, lay torn and ravaged. The tender plants, the sweet flowers, the fragrant fruits, the busy insects, all the swarming lives which had been native here for untold centuries were utterly destroyed. It was sad, and yet it was not all loss, even to my thinking, for I realized that over this desolation the green wheat would wave and the corn silk shed their pollen. It was not precisely the romantic valley of our song, but it was a rich and promiseful plot, and my father seemed entirely content. Meanwhile, on a little rise of ground near the road, neighbor Gammons and John Bowers were building our next home. It did not in the least resemble the foundation of an everlasting family seat, but it deeply excited us all. It was of pine and had the usual three rooms below and a long garret above, and as it stood on a plain bare to the winds, my father took the precaution of lining it with brick to hold it down. It was as good as most of the dwellings round about us, but it stood naked on the sod, devoid of grace as a dry-goods box. Its walls were rough plaster, its floor of white pine, its furniture poor, scanty, and worn. There was a little picture on the face of the clock, a chromo on the wall, and a printed portrait of General Grant, nothing more. It was home by reason of my mother's brave and cheery presence and the prattle of Jessie's clear voice filled it with music. Dear child, with her it was always spring. End of chapter 10